Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of most of the individuals mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, George Elser's bomb plot to kill Adolf Hitler. Now let's begin our story. November 8th was an important date in the history of Nazi Germany and the life of Adolf Hitler. It was on this date in 1923 that Hitler rushed into Munich's Burgerbrau Keller beer cellar with a group of followers and attempted to disrupt a speech of one of the political officials charged with ruling the German state of Bavaria. Behaving theatrically, Hitler leapt onto a table, fired a pistol shot into the air, and proclaimed... The National Revolution has broken out. The hall is filled with 600 men. Nobody is allowed to leave. Hitler's poorly conceived revolt would end the next day, after a march of Hitler and his followers was fired upon by soldiers and police in central Munich. Sixteen of Hitler's adherents and four police officers were killed. Ultimately, the top officials in the NSDAP, including Hitler, either fled the country or were arrested. Hitler would be placed on trial and would use this lengthy proceeding as a platform to explain his philosophy to the nation. In the end, he would be sentenced to five years of relatively comfortable confinement. He would use the jail time as an opportunity to dictate his political treatise, Mein Kampf, to his fellow prisoner and party member, Rudolf Hess. Hitler would be released in approximately nine months, now resolved to achieve power by legal means. Less than 10 years after his release from prison, Hitler would be named Chancellor of Germany on January 30, 1933. To commemorate the success of the Nazi Party and the sacrifice and struggle of what he called his Alte Kampfers, old fighters who had been with him from the beginning, Hitler began a tradition of addressing this group at the site of the start of the Nazi political struggle, the Burgerbrau Keller, annually on November 8th. Despite the outbreak of war on September 1st, 1939 would be no different. On November 8th, Hitler flew with his entourage from Berlin, landed in Munich, and in the early evening proceeded to the raucous hall jammed with Hitler's most fanatical adherents. Shortly after 8 p.m., he proceeded to the dais in the reception hall, a giant swastika flag draped on the massive pillar behind him, framing Hitler dramatically. The Fuhrer began to speak. At the same time, a simple carpenter by the name of George Elser was making his way to the Swiss border. For Elser, this night would be the most important of his life, the culmination of years of planning and months of preparation. Like the acolytes of Adolf Hitler, Elser anticipated November 8th, but not for the same reasons. He ingeniously incorporated the annual predictability of Hitler's speech into his determination to save Germany from bloodshed and destruction. 
Unbeknownst to Adolf Hitler, George Elser had spent the previous year constructing a bomb that would explode in the Burgerbrau Keller, killing the entire Nazi hierarchy and crippling the German war effort before it was too late. Elser's plan was both simple and brilliant. Hitler historically spoke for two hours. The dual clock mechanisms of Elser's device were set to detonate at 9.20. Incredibly, Elser had been able to install and conceal his bomb in a specially constructed secret compartment in the pillar directly behind the podium. If the explosion didn't immediately kill Hitler and everyone around him, the collapse of the pillar, the main support for the entire structure of the banquet hall, would certainly do the trick. On the train that would take him to Constance, a German border town, and hopefully freedom in Switzerland, Elser checked his watch. It was only a matter of time. The contrast between Adolf Hitler and George Elser could not have been more dramatic. Hitler was a fanatically driven overachiever who would overcome his lower middle class background, lack of education, and early personal failures to become one of the most charismatic and extroverted political figures of the 20th century. Elser was a simple woodworker with an intermittent work history, an unmarried loner with little interest in politics or the world beyond the small towns of southern Germany where he lived and grew up. But on November 8, 1939, the lives of these two individuals would intersect in a manner that today seems inconceivable. Johann George Elser was born in Hemmeringen, Germany, on January 4, 1903. His 24-year-old mother, Maria, would not marry George's father, Ludwig Elser, for almost a year after George, as he would come to be known, was born. Ludwig came from a farming family, and after the young couple was married, he used a small inheritance to buy some farmland in the nearby town of Konigsbrunn. He would also attempt to start a lumber business, buying and reselling wood. Ludwig would concentrate on this business while Maria was charged with operating the farm. This despite the fact that she would give birth to five other children in nine years, starting in 1904. Even as a small child, George, as the oldest, was called upon to take care of his younger siblings and, as he grew older, help on the farm. With such a large family and minimal amounts of money, life was relatively hard. The relationship between George's mother and father only made things more difficult. With the lumber business a losing proposition and the farm generating only modest amounts of income, Ludwig began to drink heavily and become physically abusive toward his wife. While this was not uncommon in rural Germany in the early 20th century, it was oppressive enough that Maria actually left her husband for a very brief period in 1910. She would return after a few days, but this incident is indicative of the tension in the household. George would begin school shortly thereafter, but would remain an average student throughout his educational experience. Working in his father's lumber business and on the farm on weekends meant little time for studying. Even worse was his parents' practice of paying him nothing for the hours of hard work that he put in. On his only day of rest Sunday, George had no pocket money to spend. Instead of socializing with his peers, he would opt to stay home, sparing him from embarrassment but isolating him socially. Even as a teenager, George began to look for an escape from a dull and demanding environment. Over his father's loud objections, he applied for an apprenticeship as an ironworks lathe operator and was accepted into a factory with over 40 other workers. He would work there until February 1919, at which point he decided that he was more comfortable working with wood. In March, he was able to secure an apprenticeship in a nearby carpenter's workshop. 
Here he developed tremendous skill in the fine craftsmanship involved in furniture and cabinet making. Whatever small amounts of money he received, he spent on additional tools for a workshop in his family home. By the spring of 1922, he had graduated from vocational school at the top of his class. He would soon be working as a professional cabinet maker. By 1925, George could no longer stand the stifling dysfunction within his parents' household. While he was now a full-grown adult, their dysfunctional relationship had never improved. He decided to strike out on his own. Despite his obvious talents as a woodworker, George Elser's employment moving forward would be inconsistent. He was employed in various situations and locations, including an aircraft factory where he worked on wooden propellers and a clock factory that changed hands on several occasions, instigating layoffs of its entire workforce. This erratic employment history was not all George's fault. In the economic environment of Germany in the late 20s, all jobs and businesses were functioning in challenging times. He was able to make a home for himself in the German lakeside town of Constanz, at one point finding cabinetry work over the nearby border in Switzerland, in a town six miles away. He would bicycle to work, officially designated as local traffic, thereby avoiding customs inspections. George Elser would start to come out of his social shell at this point as well. Besides woodworking, George was also a talented musician. He played in the band of a local club and suddenly found himself very attractive to women that he met there. Probably because of his childhood experiences, George Elser drank sparingly, if at all. He was quiet, polite, and reserved, and was soon involved in a relationship with a local waitress. Unfortunately, this woman, Matilda Biederman, would get pregnant in December of 1929. Even though the couple ultimately decided to attempt to get an abortion in Geneva, Matilda was already four months into her pregnancy, one month over the legal limit. George felt that he had been deceived, and the relationship disintegrated. From this moment on, his employment would be dictated by his desire to avoid child support payments automatically deducted by the state. He was now also wary of relationships with women because his economic situation precluded raising a family on top of his existing obligation. In 1930, George found a job in a clock factory in Mearsburg, constructing wooden cases. He would work there for two years before bankruptcy shut down this employment. George was unsuccessful in finding immediate employment, and in the interim, he received a letter from his mother telling him that his father was drinking away their farmland and running the lumber business into the ground. She implored him to return to the family home in Koningsbrunn, hoping his presence would help stabilize the situation. George, as the eldest son in the family, felt obligated to go home. Unfortunately, his homecoming would have little effect on his father, who would drink daily and then overbid on lumber that he would have to sell at a loss. George helped out in the lumber business and worked on the farm, but was not able to find carpentry work. His father ignored him and continued his abusive ways toward the rest of the family. As an escape, George joined a local zither society. He was proficient with the obscure stringed instrument that was popular in alpine regions. George also played the double bass in a local band which got him out of the house for concerts and dances. His only close friend was a former schoolmate, Eugen Rao, who he had known since the first grade. George would tell his friend about his domestic situation, which remained bleak. Nationally, things had changed radically in Germany as well. On January 30, 1933, 
after a succession of positive results in national elections, Nazi Party leader Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany. Only the moribund President Hindenburg stood in the way of Hitler's total power. In Konigsbrunn, it would not be until July 1934 that George would find another job in a carpentry workshop run by a man named Friedrich Grupp. Later, Grupp would recall, he was a good craftsman, thoroughly decent and honest. He always built for himself alone. He was a real loner. But this position would only last four months before George felt that he had to return to the farm. The situation there was dire. By the end of 1935, the Elsers would have to sell the farm entirely to pay existing debts. As a condition of the sale, George's father was allowed to remain on the farm. The rest of the family dispersed throughout the region. George rented a room in a local family's home. He actually knew the family well, especially the young wife, Elsa Harlan. Her marriage was unhappy, and the proximity of George was a recipe for even more discord. George went back to work for Friedrich Krupp. Again, this didn't last very long. He would bounce around between odd jobs and unemployment compensation until moving to his newly reconciled parents' home. Elsa's husband had terminated the rental, suspecting correctly that George and his wife were having an affair. George's employment situation was also rather bleak. In December of 1936, he was three months into unemployment with minimal opportunities for woodworking when he decided to accept an iron and metalworks factory job as an unskilled laborer. The pay was miserable and the work mindless and dirty, but any amount George earned over 24 Reichsmarks would go to alimony anyway. He was also promised that if he stayed at the factory, he would eventually be transferred to something less dreary. The local political environment also did nothing to brighten George's gloomy perspective. Locally, in the four years since the death of Hindenburg and the Nazi takeover of Germany, the influence of the party had made its way into small-town life, even in Konigsbrunn. The country was subdivided into regions, districts, dissected all the way down to individual blocks. The Nazis eliminated any social organizations like the Zither Club and the impromptu dances where George had previously entertained. In the New Order, complaining or dissent was literally illegal and known as defeatism. George Elser was not political, neither was his family, but he and his friend Eugen Rau would discuss the changes. In Constance, Elser had joined a communist front group, mostly at the urging of his work colleagues. He paid dues for a while, but rarely attended meetings of any consequence. Elser had left his sympathies because he believed the communists would be better for workers like himself, but he was theoretically and politically aloof. But he was not unconscious to the changes within German politics and society. He calculated the difference in wages and deductions, noting that despite Nazi government claims concerning full employment and prosperity, salaries were lower and paycheck deductions were higher. George also noted the aggressive militaristic attitudes of the government, understanding that another European war might be inevitable. Elser was also grappling with what he would do with Elsa Harlan. Her marriage had disintegrated and she and her two young children had moved back into her parents' home. They knew and liked George and encouraged him to move in with Elsa into an apartment her parents owned. But George must have sensed that this was not the direction that he wished to pursue. He continued to see Elsa but remained in an attic room at his parents' current address. By November of 1938, Elsa decided that he would head in a very different direction. On November 8, 1938, Adolf Hitler had traveled to Munich to give his speech at the Burgerbrau Keller. 3,000 brown-shirted devotees 
heartily enjoyed the bellicose presentation, frequently interrupting the Fuhrer's hostile diatribes with wildly enthusiastic applause. George Elser was also in Munich that night. When he had to fill out paperwork declaring the reason for his visit to Munich, he wrote that he was a tourist wishing to visit the Bavarian capital. He made his way to the Burgerbrau Keller and was kept away from the building itself by police roadblocks, the building long since filled to capacity. Elser waited until the crowds abated, the roadblocks were removed. He then made his way into the now relatively empty beer cellar. George didn't really care that he was unable to hear Hitler speak. He was intent on determining how realistic it was for him to be able to implement a plan that he was convinced that he needed to undertake. In the fall of 1938, George Elser had come to the conclusion that if he could kill the big three of the Nazi leadership, Hitler, Goering, and Goebbels, the resulting Nazi government would not be as aggressive in dealing with the rest of Europe, and Germany would be spared from destruction. Now, as he wandered through the great hall of the Burgerbrau Keller, he was intent on determining just how realistic his plan was. As the waitstaff cleaned up the numerous plates and beer mugs left behind by the now-departed throng, Elser noted the swastika festoon pillar in the middle of the room behind the rostrum. After observing the general layout of the hall and having dinner in an adjoining brew pub, Elser went back to his room. Part of the traditional celebration of the Putsch was a parade on November 9th, reenacting the march on central Munich that resulted in the deaths of the 16 National Socialist Martyrs. Hitler would also be present for this event, and so was George Elser, observing the solemn procession of thousands of uniformed Nazis making their way to the newly constructed Shrine to the Martyrs, two immense structures in Munich's Konigsplatz. To Elser, this somber moment only hardened his resolve to strike at the heart of the Nazi hierarchy. Later, he would state that he was overwhelmed with the sense of doom that the spectacle induced, and he felt compelled to do something to resist in his own individual way. He returned from Munich with a specific determination to turn a general concept of resistance into a specific and solitary plan of action. From his very first observation of the Burgerbrau Keller, George Elser focused on the pillar behind the speaker's lectern as the most suitable location for an explosive device. He would not be able to determine the exact location of the Nazi leadership, but he knew that Hitler would definitely be speaking directly in front of this large column. A suitable explosion would not only send deadly debris everywhere, it would potentially destroy the column and collapse the roof of the building. Anyone sitting nearby would probably not survive either. But George had zero experience from a design or implementation perspective with the development of the type of timed explosive device he required. Elser did have at least one coincidentally fortuitous element in his favor as he began his planning. Like most German industrial works in the 30s, no matter how small, some manufacturing work was devoted to munitions-related materials. In the case of George's factory, this was the production of artillery shell detonators. This type of manufacturing required explosive powder. After a year of employment, George had been transferred to the factory's shipping department, which allowed him to observe exactly what materials and parts were used in the construction of the detonators. He could not observe this process because it took place in a special department that was strictly off-limits, but through his perspective in shipping and receiving, Elser would see detailed plan and design sketches of the device. 
More importantly, explosive black powder was also necessary for this process. George began to methodically pilfer tiny amounts of this crucial element without detection. He kept the powder wrapped in paper and then linen in a closet in his room in the family home. The door to this room was always locked. George would have probably kept his room locked anyway. When his younger brother Leonard got married in 1938, he suggested that George should probably move out. When George resisted, he was informed that officially, the title to the home was split three ways between Leonard and George's parents. Leonard also demanded that George start paying rent. George was quite upset that after years of working for nothing and attempting to help keep the farm and business sustainable, he would be treated in a manner he felt to be deceitful. From this moment on, he would be estranged from his family, not even speaking to them while in their presence. By early 1939, Elser began to focus almost exclusively on the Burgerbrow Keller project. He constructed a special suitcase with three locks and a secret double bottom. He returned to Constance to examine the border crossing as a potential corridor of escape and noticed that there was no particular increase in security. Elser also began to sell off anything that was not a necessity, accumulating over 300 marks, money that he would eventually tap into later in the year. He physically left his parents' residence and moved to a nearby town where he would exchange carpentry work with an acquaintance in exchange for a room. In March 1939, he quit his job at the metalworks. He had already stolen a massive amount of powder and needed to devote himself to full-time planning of the plot. He returned to Munich in April of 1939, spending eight days ingratiating himself with the staff of the Burgerbrow Keller, photographing some of the female waitstaff while surreptitiously photographing key points in the beer hall. He also was able to take precise measurements of the column he now knew would be his device's hiding place. Elser also successfully ingratiated himself at a local quarry near where he lived in the town of Itzelberg. He worked part-time, observing as much as he could about the process used when explosives were employed to displace rock and soil. Incredibly, despite strict government regulation concerning the storage and security required for explosive materials, Elser discovered that the door of the concrete shed containing this contraband was easily forcible. At night, he would return to the quarry and take numerous explosive cartridges as well as blasting caps, way more than was necessary for what he was contemplating. Because the legally requisite record-keeping was so shoddy, these thefts were never discovered. Elser also acquired rifle shells that would be part of the ignition process for the device he had in mind. He correctly theorized that a rifle being fired would involve a cartridge being struck with a spring-activated hammer that would detonate a tiny explosion. The crude elements of his bomb were already coming together. George still had some fundamental questions to answer concerning his device. He would not be present to light a fuse to detonate the blasting cap for his explosives. Would a rifle cartridge actually be able to detonate a blasting cap that would in turn detonate the bomb? and if this was even possible, how to detonate the rifle cartridges themselves. Again, he couldn't be there to strike the cartridges at the appropriate time. Obviously, this would require some sort of timed mechanism. George spent all of his waking hours and all of his craftsman's ingenuity to answer these fundamental design questions. He made sketch after sketch, refining his ideas and meticulously honing his bomb design. 
in July 1939 in the orchard still owned by his parents near Konigsbrunn, he set off prototypes that demonstrated that a rifle cartridge could, in fact, ignite a blasting cap. He was almost too proficient. His uncle was nearby and heard four resounding explosions and came by to check out the noise. George told him he was working on an invention and would show him when he was finished. Throughout this time period, Elser kept to himself, although he did maintain sporadic contact with Elsa Harlan. He knew that at least in the short term, any real relationship was impossible. Whenever they did get together, his preoccupation was obvious, but when confronted about his immediate plans, he would only say that he had to go to Munich. That was also how he explained his dead-end job in the quarry. He would have to leave soon anyway. She didn't know what to make of this inexplicable behavior. He reassured her that it was all for the best, and she accepted his reassurance without much choice. Thank you for listening to part one about George Elser. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Bombing Hitler by Helmut Hassis and The Lone Assassin by Helmut Ortner. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Music.